You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Happy New Year. We closed out 2019 with a series of episodes with Dick Metz. And today we're going to complete that series with our fourth installment. Dick tells us about a cross-country road trip in a motorhome with Hobie Alter, Phil Edwards, Bruce Brown, Mike Hinson, Corky Carroll, and Joey Cabell. He tells us about the deal he struck with the Hilton Hotel family to finance Hobie's skateboard business. And he responds to your questions about potential illegitimate children spawned from his world travels how diet, exercise, and drugs have influenced his health and memory well into his 90th year of life. But first, we're going to revisit Leif Braun and Jamin Luoto from NVS Fins. We've been chatting about their Apex series. It's a G10 fiberglass, so it's basically the type of fiberglass you'd use on a circuit board. So industrial grade, it has the ideal fiber to resin ratio. That allows less buildup and layering of materials, so the foil is more refined, creates less water disturbance, and you simply go faster. Listeners have responded, and they began purchasing fins and sending me positive feedback. One person even told me that NVS uh, was able to make them a custom templated fin, and it was still cheaper than fins they would have bought off the rack. So through this conversation, Leif made reference to the fact that NVS has been a 10-year project. So I asked, what was the realization he had that inspired him to focus on NVS full-time? In 2011, I found out I had kidney cancer. So I'm fine. I took part in my kidney out. We're cool. Uh, (laughs) But it was the, you only live once. So if you're passionate about something, go out and do it. And do it right. I just started focusing more more time and energy on it. And after a couple more years, realized that the company's not going to grow the way I'd like it to unless I dedicated full-time. So I left my previous job to just focus on NVS. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're people behind this company. It's not, uh, it's us. You know, it's not a board of directors. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually think that kind of matters. Now yeah, I do too. You know? Absolutely matters. But yeah, I mean, this elevator pitch is just it's a really, they're really high quality fins at a very reasonable price. And we have integrated a lot of these things like sustainability and into into our approach. Right. Yeah. We make a better fin. It's a better price. We use better materials. They're going to last longer. You're going to have more fun. Spend more time in the water. That's Catch great. more waves. That's simple. That, I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. Save the money. Buy a burrito. SurfNVS.com is their website, and their promo code is the word podcast, and that gets you 20% off any order of Apex Series fins. Leif and Jamin will be back at the end of the show, but until then, check out SurfNVS.com and use the promo code podcast to save 20% off what's already a bargain price, and you will also help support this show. And without further ado, the man who has garnered more praise than any other guest that we've ever had, and someone who's really ripe just to have a documentarian or biographer follow him around for the next year or so, the venerable Dick Metz. And by the way, let's not forget, Dick is still working hard archiving surf history at the museum he co-founded, the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center in San Clemente, California. You can become a member or simply support them at shack.org. That's S-H-A-C-C.org. 
And if you're ever in the neighborhood, definitely swing by and check it out. Uh, it's really incredible. All right, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Here's part four with Dick Metz. I mean, the reality is everything that we discussed so far finished 60 years ago. <laughs> so maybe we should kind of follow up with the 60 years that have transpired since and what the influence was of that trip um, and how the Endless Summer played out for you and what that was like experiencing, seeing that and watching that grow. Do you have thoughts uh, on where you'd like to start? Well, let's say if 60, so 30 years ago would have been 1990. Uh, did we must have talked about selling the end of the Hobie shops that I started. we didn't talk about the end of it. We only talked about you starting it in Honolulu. Okay, well, certainly, you know that took up a large part of my life. Um, I started the the first one was in Honolulu. The second one was Lahaina, Maui, uh, a year later, and then Hobie called me one day and he said. Uh, Florida is another Waikiki. So get on an airplane and fly to Florida. I said, oh, that's a hell of a long ways from Honolulu. He said, well, just get down there and check it out. So I did. And I opened a shop in Daytona Beach in Jacksonville, Florida. And we had a boat dealer. Uh, we were setting up a boat dealer in Miami. So we sold him surfboards. So this is before Bruce had now made the movie, The Endless Summer, but he hadn't started to show it yet. So I went back to the East Coast and opened surf shops, Hobie shops, and I took a guy from Laguna, Corky Smith, uh, from Laguna and his wife, drove back and managed that store. I set it up, and uh, then... Hobie rented a motorhome, and this was before motorhomes were kind of, they were just evolving, and they hadn't really perfected them. So in this small motorhome, he took Hobie and his wife, Sharon, uh, Phil Edwards and his wife, Heidi, Bruce Brown and his wife, Pat, along with Corky Carroll, Joey Cabell, and Mike Henson. Robert August didn't go for, for whatever reason. And they drove from Dana Point and Laguna across country and went to, started in Boston and then drove all the way down the coast. All of them in this motorhome. Wow. Now, if you can imagine, uh, you know, three married couples and three stag guys in the same motorhome. And, you know, they're 30 years old or something, you know, and their guys are drinking and parties are going on and, and, you know, the toilet overflowed and the guys are hung over, you know, it's just the whole nine yards. So I was in Daytona and nobody else would drive this thing. It was, it was really a, a rattly trap motorhome. It's not like a big honking thing that you see on the freeways today. And Hobie called me from, I think I want to say Virginia, Virginia Beach. I'm sure it was Virginia Beach because they had come down the coast. So what they did is they had the endless summer with them, uh, the movie, and so they would have a, a surf contest at whichever they went to uh, New York and you know down the coast to the major surf spots. Had a surf contest, had a paddle contest, and they would always because Corky was such a good paddler, <clears throat> they would make a loop. They'd hold the board. They'd take. 
Corky's board away from him so the other guys would get ahead and then they'd give Corky's board and they'd go catch him and it still went all races so they worked their way down but there was a lot of uh, you know having that many people confined so close together 24 hours a day it just the the pressure was ready to blow and Hobie said you got to fly up to I think it was Virginia Beach and you got to drive and I you know I got to get some sleep because they were Hobie would drive most of the night to the next town. And this was a daily routine. And, the, you know, the energy level was just going off the chart. And finally, Joey f- got upset and flew home. Uh, and I guess, I can't remember if anybody else left early. So I flew to Virginia Beach, and then I drove this damn thing so Hobie could sleep at night because uh, I had been refreshed. And so we got to Jacksonville, Florida, and we had the shop there, showed the movie. Uh, skateboards, too, had just come out, so we'd do a skateboard contest. All of this would go on. It was a great promotion. Yeah. I mean, people came out of the woodwork to see the new shop, to see the uh, surf contest on the beach with Phil and Corky and all the guys, the paddle contest, and then that night would be the surf uh, endless summer movie. You know, it was like a weekend that was just highly charged and a lot of energy, and everybody was having a, a great time, and parties were going crazy, and, and everybody in this motorhome was going crazy because they were sick of each other by then. I mean, they're all good friends, and they made it through, but it was just, it was a high-charged kind of hectic trip so uh finally they got to daytona beach where i had the biggest store and that went off real well and they finally went home from there and a bunch of them flew home and hobie ended up driving the motor home back to dana point but it was really a, a wild uh, it was about a month's trip you know by the time they drove across down and back across so it was a, a hectic thing and Another little story I I should tell. There's so many interesting facts that nobody ever knows, but in this case, certainly me. But Butch Ben Archdale grew up in La Jolla, and because the Hobie store was the really the first shirt shop in Dana Point, the first it was the first thing that was ever made to be a surf shop. You know, the rest of most of the guys, <clears throat> Bing and Greg Knoll and Dewey and those guys were making surfboards in their dad's garage, which Hobie did at first too, but he really built a building on the coast highway that was made to be a surf shop. It was originally a two-car garage and then we added a little display area to it. <clears throat> so it was kind of the the king surf shops of of california i mean there weren't any there was none in hawaii there was none on the east coast till i opened those so the guys from la jolla the patterson brothers uh butch and other ones came up and wanted to work at the hobie shop in dana point and butch's reputation is pretty well known he liked to get drunk certainly and fight occasionally and but he he was a great had a great sense of humor. I'm Butch and I got along really good. And so Butch would write, he was hired to package the surfboards. Uh, they came out of the factory in a plastic bag, and then Butch would put them in a box and address the box. And normally, they, well, in those days, the only 
other dealer was me in Honolulu, uh, and so he would, uh, you know, address them to Kapiolani Boulevard, Dick Metz, and they would air freight them to Honolulu. And in this case, when I was in back east, he would send them back east. And <laughs> in today's world, I mean, I, I'm hesitant to even say some of these things because it's a different world. But Butch, in today's world, would certainly be called a racist. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> but he wasn't doing it to be a racist. He was just doing it to bug me because Butch and I had this. You're always, our, our life, our culture, our, the way we grew up was to fake somebody out. You're always trying to, to screw them up somehow and give them, just get their attention. And you wanted to be the head guy that was coming up with more little tricks or games to play. And so in Honolulu, I think I might have told you this, but if I didn't, it's important. So Butch is packaging all these boards to send to Honolulu. And <clears throat> Dana Point store, there was no other buildings in Dana Point. Dana Point wasn't a town. There was no businesses. There was no post office, police department, fire department. There was nothing there. And that's why we all went there, because you could do what you want to do and, you know, build a fire and uh, have a party and nobody cared. So Butch would sign these boxes uh to me in Honolulu, and it was all bare ground around. He would capture different uh, gopher snakes and king snakes, and as most people know, there are no snakes in Hawaii. And so Butch would pour a little resin on these snakes, and the, the vapor from the resin would kind of make them kind of asleep, and he'd put them in a surfboard box. And so when I got the first boxes in Honolulu, I'd open one end and hold it up over my head so the board in a plastic bag would slide out. And we had a lawn in front of the Hobie shop in Honolulu, and they'd just slide out on the grass in this plastic bag. And here all these little kids couldn't wait to the day I got. I didn't get boards every day. They'd come every week or 10 days. And so they all knew when they were coming, they'd all stand around. And I was running out a snake would come out and they were scared to death and you had these little Japanese and Butch thought that was really funny. That I, is insane. <laughs> and so I had to go capture these snakes. They weren't moving very fast because he had poured a little resin on them. They were still alive but I think they were ready to be dead. Uh, live or the resin with no catalyst? Well, I... I mean, did it harden the snakes? Is it, or it, just it did. It? it was not... I think he put a little catalyst, but not enough for it really to go off. It was just sticky kind of. Oh it never really gosh. went off 100%. And so they'd kind of wiggle around. The kids were scared to death and ran off because the only way they ever saw a snake was in the zoo that was all caged and everything. Yeah. And here they came out on the lawn, and I'm trying to catch them. And it wasn't, it wasn't like there was hundreds of them. I mean, there'd be two or three we're talking about. And they were moving slow. And so Butch thought that was so funny, and he was always sending me stuff in the boxes so anyway there's all these little side stories that happened in the surf industry in those early years that i think it's important just to, so the people know what the lifestyle was and the culture was at that time the way people thought and talked is totally different than it is today yeah. <clears throat> so we opened those stores but i soon learned that i was living in honolulu 
and for me to fly from Honolulu to Daytona, Florida and oversee the books, there's not enough profit in surfboards to begin with. There never has been. I'm making $10 for selling a surfboard. Well, you got to sell a lot of surfboards at 10 bucks to pay for an airplane fare from Honolulu to Daytona, rent a room, rent a car, and it didn't make sense. So I closed that. Well, I didn't close it. I sold the store to some local guys, but they couldn't call it Hobie Sports anymore. I was the only one that could use that name. So they called it whatever their name was. I've forgotten now. And the store is, was still there 20 years ago, but it was under a different name. So the Hobie shops that I opened on the East Coast uh, were in 19, that was in 1964 or 5, uh, were the first surf shops on the East Coast, but they didn't last very long as under the Hobie Sports name. So I went back to Honolulu and it was a lot more profitable for me to run the store in Lahaina and Honolulu and stay there and run those rather than being flying all over the country trying to do that. Right. But that was a great lesson for me. I learned a lot on that lesson uh, when I later on opened more stores in California and I found that you're better off to have more stores close together that I could drive to in a day than have them spread all over the place. So <clears throat> eventually I had 22 retail stores, but uh, they only worked when they were really close together, and that would be like Dana Point, Laguna, Corona Del Mar, Huntington Beach. You know, you could have them that close together where they weren't competing with each other, but uh, they were far enough apart in that respect, but not so far that you couldn't control them and see them. So during that time, well, that next from from the mid-'60s, um, I think, didn't we talk about the fact that Jerry Lopez and Jack Shipley ended up buying the Honolulu store? You just referenced that much of it. You didn't well, tell any stories. Well, what happened is the Hobie Cats came out. And so uh, so the movie came out in 65. Uh, the Hobie Cats came out in 67, 68. And so Hobie sent me, the 14s were the first boats made. He sent me his number 7 and 11 uh, of the 14s to Honolulu and Hobie had tested them in California but it doesn't blow near as hard here as it does in Hawaii and he flew over and I didn't know how to sail Hobie flew over and this is another thing to show how different it is today so in those days you'd land at the airport in Honolulu and there was no big uh, terminal or anything they'd just unload and originally when I first flew over the Pan Am Clippers were still coming so they'd land in the water and then there was a ramp that they would come up put their wheels down and drive up the ramp to the landing strip and that's where you'd get out wow <clears throat> so when the planes that hobie came over because uh, i came on the laurel lane the first time he couldn't even f hardly fly there planes uh, didn't have enough uh range to fly from la to honolulu you had to fly from la to san francisco and then across because it's shorter from san francisco so Anyway, Hobie flew over with the boats, two, two of those boats, and we put them together. We took, unloaded them from the plane he was on right on the airstrip where the, pan, the, the ramp was, 
The airplane had parked down at that end. We offloaded them, put the boats together right on the airstrip where the Pan Am planes came out of the water. And I said, Hobie, I don't know how to sail this damn thing. And he said, oh, it's really easy. Do what I do. We're going to sail down the Outrear Club. And that's where I had I was a member, of course, and that's where everybody kind of hung out. And we could beach them right there. So we put them together. And we sailed out through the harbor to get in the ocean right where the airstrip is and up the <clears throat> coast to, I mean, it was only maybe, I don't know, I'm going to say four or five miles from the airport on the water to the Outrigger Canoe Club. I must have tipped it over, I don't know, 10 or 15 times. And Hobie said, well, it's no big deal. And he put a rope on it and showed me how to pop it over. And so in that that one afternoon sailing to the Outrigger Canoe Club, I learned how to sail these things and pop them over. So Hobie stayed a couple of days, and he said, I want you to sail these every day and see what breaks or what doesn't work so good in the heavy air around Honolulu. Sail out to the Diamond Head buoy and back. And so we did, and then he left. So for the next six months, I played with the Hobie Cats, and I was too busy. And this was a new, exciting, fun part. And I was still, of course, surfing almost every day. But I didn't want to stay in the surf shop. So Jack Shipley, who I'd hired to be my manager when I was gone to the mainland, uh, he wanted to buy it. And so Lopez was also... They were in high school, you know, seniors in high school at Puno. Randy Rarick and Jerry and a bunch of other kids, Tommy Lee, were all in high school, and they'd hang out at the Hobie shop, and I'd have them patch boards and run errands for me and do, do stuff like that. And Jerry started shaping a little bit, so they decided to, they wanted to buy it, but they didn't have any money. So I got a guy at the Outrigger Canoe Club named Howdy Goss, and he uh, put up the money for Lopez and Jack Shipley. So I was out of the surfboard shop, but I was still the Hobie dealer for not only the Hawaiian Islands, but the whole South Pacific. So I still was the Hobie guy, but I didn't run the shop. And so then they had to change the name because they couldn't, if they were going to own it they had to own it under a different name so that's how lightning bolt started so jerry and jack shipley became partners along with howdy goss that put the money up and they called the old what i called the hobie shop was now the lightning bolt store so that's how lightning bolt and jerry lopez of course got to be mr pipeline <clears throat> And the whole lightning bolt name became really popular at that time. We're talking about the mid, well, it was the mid 60s, uh, late 60s, and into the 70s. And so that became a exciting name, but that was really the old Hobie shop. And then I just had my office at the Outrear Club and sold Hobie cats. And I took them to different islands on the barge, and I'd take maybe five boats to Maui and put one together and sail around right along the beaches. Oh, guys, yell at me, hey, I want to buy that boat. How much is it? In those days, a Hobie 14, which didn't have a jib, but just had a mainsail, was $900. Now, today, they're like $10,000. So they say we had no inflation, but that's what happened. To but the that's Hobie a kids. bit more profit than the $10 per surfboard. You well, exactly. Making. That's why I was stoked all of a sudden. I wasn't making any money, but at least I could make a living. I mean, the surfboard things, you know, I was just scrounging around. Right. <clears throat> but with the boats, I think then they raised it to $1,000. And I think then I made $100 
on a boat. But I had to put it together, deliver it, and I had to go get it at the airport, bring it down to the outrigger, put it together, get rid of all the body. It was a big job, you know, to put it together and rig it. And then I'd <clears throat> trailer it over to Kaneohe or North Shore or whoever was buying it. And then if I took them to the other islands, I'd have to go over with it, fly over, meet them over there, build it on there, put it together, and then deliver it. So mm -hmm. it was a big job. It took a couple of days, depending on where you're going. So I made 100 bucks that way. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was creeping up anyway. So that's how the the Hobie, so then Hobie called me. He was always calling me and want me to do something else. He said, you got to open some more stores in California. So then I flew over, and um, he didn't, the Dana Point store, had been there now. This was the mid late sixties. Well, probably nineteen seventy by then, uh, and that had been there for almost twenty years on the coast highway. And it wasn't big enough. It was a two car garage, and he had we had added on a display room and built a little bit of room in the back. And so then he built bought a factory, a little building, wasn't a big factory, uh, in Capo Beach, and then started making all the boards there and made the Dana Point store the first retail store. But Hobie couldn't run that. Hobie didn't like running anything. He wanted to create stuff. He was an inventor. He was a Thomas Edison. He wanted to work in a shop. He had lays and all kinds of tools and would make stuff. And that's where he was happy and to sit at a desk or do a administrative work, hire and fire people and payroll. You know, he didn't want anything to do with that. But I couldn't invent anything. So uh, I was good at numbers. So I would do the stuff that Hobie didn't like to do. So he could go off and work on the Hobie Cat. Uh, then he made the 16 and the 18 and all, all the different sizes, which required making molds. And he loved making molds and doing all that. He'd make a model first and make it play with it in the ocean, just a little model, and then make a bigger boat. And, you mm -hmm. know, that was just fun for him. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I came back over here, took over the Dana Point store, and actually he wanted me to not only uh, take over the business, but he wanted me to buy half the building because Hobie's dad had built that little two-car garage. So I bought half the building, and Hobie and I were half partners in the building and then I bought the other half later on and owned the property and he had moved the, the surfboard factory down to Capo Beach and then right next door is where he's making the boats so he was happier there and I was up on the coast highway in the retail store well by then surfing was really booming so <clears throat> I opened a store in Laguna and Corona del Mar and Santa Monica and Santa Cruz and San Diego and here I learned from that flying back and forth that I could be in Dana Point but go to any of those stores in any one day and check them out and watch stuff and the inventory and control it better. And uh, at the store on Santa Monica Boulevard in Santa Monica, and this is when the skateboard started too. So we had... Uh, Hobie had built the first skateboards and uh, we didn't have enough money to... Uh, make enough product so uh, uh, Hilton uh, I'm trying, Conrad, Conrad was the main the father uh, Baron Hilton 
So of the Hilton hotels. Hotels. So there was Conrad Hilton was the one that started Hilton Hotels. He had a son named Baron, and Baron was like probably thirty-five or forty. He was older than we were at that time, and he was taking over the Hilton Hotel thing. But they were branching out into other stuff, and Hilton Hotels bought Vitapack orange juice in Covina, and they had a big factory where they made Vitapack orange juice because <clears throat> that's where. <clears throat> excuse me, all the uh, orange groves were in that time. And they had big warehouses. And because Baron Hilton had a bunch of kids, he was married and had uh, Davy Hilton and, uh, gee, I can't remember all the kids' names, but they were like seven, eight, ten years old. So we put them on Hobie skateboards. And so Baron Hilton financed the skateboard team and Vitapack, where they had these huge warehouses, had the money and the infrastructure, they started manufacturing our skateboards. We're down there in the surfboard factory. We'd make 10 a day or something, and it wasn't near enough. The demand became huge from Sears and Roebuck, uh, Montgomery Wards, big chain stores throughout the country would call us up, say, we want a 1,000 skateboards. It would take us three months to make a scout, and they wanted them tomorrow. you know. And so we got barren to manufacture these and Hobie and I'd go up to the Vitapack store and they were making thousands of them because they had the facilities. They had warehouses full of them were shipping uh, Hobie skateboards and we made several different models. Sur Super Surfer was one piece of wood and then we laminated or had Baron laminate uh, so it looked like a surfboard. So there was different stringers in it and then uh, and Hobie was inventing all this stuff or creating it and he would take it to Baron and then he made a fiberglass one had more rocker in it with the wood skateboards they were just flat and to start doing the tricks that the kids do now and a lot more tricks we had to get rocker in it so they could stand on the tail and do 360s and stuff so Hobie created a fiberglass Hobie skateboard so all of these were the evolution of the skateboard all this was going on at the same time we were making surfboards and Hobie cats and there was just a huge amount of energy Energy. Uh, everybody in Dana Point, it seemed like, worked for Hobie in the boat factory or the surfboard or the skateboards. <clears throat> but all the skateboards, after we made a few in the surfboard factory, went to Vitapack, and that's where we shipped those out. <clears throat> we would go up there, and they had you know, stacks up into the ceiling with forklifts shipping, you know, whole pallets of skateboards that we had no way of doing. And I think we got a dollar a skateboard or something, and, and uh, the Hiltons took care of all the book work. But that's where we got some financial backing because we didn't have it. We couldn't get a loan. You know, we did get small loans in the bank in, Le in Dana Point. The manager, it was a gal named Carol Elterman, uh, and she grew up in Dana Point and knew us. And uh, we could borrow up to $50,000, which is a lot of money then, uh, from the local bank. But if it was more than 50000 we had to go to the L.A. branch and get permission from the higher-ups. Carol could only go to 50 grand. So when we built the boat factory, we borrowed the 50 grand, and we, but we needed more money. And so Carol said, well, you got to go to L.A. So Hobie and I drive up. We didn't know. We were, I mean, I was older than Hobie, but I should have known, but I didn't. We, you know, we were beach guys. And we had resin on our Levi's, and we had 
flip-flops on and t-shirts and dirty and everything we went to the downtown bank in la to borrow 100 grand and the guys looked at us and shook their head and sent us home they wouldn't give us a dime you know wow. the, the way we looked so we decided then i told hobie i said when it gets up to when our thing is worth fifty thousand, we ought to just sell it and then start something new because 50 seemed to be our limit and we were also making t-shirts by then <clears throat> when i was in honolulu Hobie t sent me T-shirts that had the Hobie diamond on them and said, you know, Hobie surfboards, Dana Point, California. Well, I would sell a few, but in Honolulu, they didn't want Dana Point, California. So I called Hobie one day and I said, is it okay if I go down to get a shirt uh, screener and put Honolulu Hawaii instead of Dana Point on them, same logo. And he said, oh, Dad, do whatever you want. So I went and I found a Chinese screener down in Honolulu and he had make shirts for me and so <clears throat> that's how we got in the clothing business because <clears throat> i'm selling surfboards but we really didn't have any other products and at ten dollars a surfboard to pay rent and to pay shipley and for me to get enough to eat on uh, there really wasn't much so we <clears throat> we had surfboard carriers aloha and rincon racks were the first two uh, commercial surfboard racks we sold those really well and you got wax but I wanted to sell the t-shirts. So once I had Honolulu Hawaiian, those sold like hotcakes because in those days to go to Hawaii was a major deal. And if you came back home to California with a pair of m -Nee trunks that I had had this, I think I talked about m -Nee. mm -hmm. No, I didn't talk about it. I know the brand, but no, we didn't talk about it. Oh, that. well, that's a whole story there. I got to tell you that story. Okay. But before, let me finish the t-shirts. So... Uh, kids would come in and didn't buy a surfboard, but the girls would want T-shirts. And they'd take them home to their friends and their boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever. I sold thousands of Hobie T-shirts because they said Honolulu, Hawaiian. And when you'd wear those in California, then right away it was obvious that you would... See, there was no mail order. you got to think that life was a different, as we've talked about before, the culture was different, the lifestyle. There was no mail order. You didn't do that. Yeah. And so so you had to be there to buy it and so that meant when you had honolulu t-shirt that was you'd been to hawaii and people went well how is it what's the surf like and so it was a big deal <clears throat> so i sold thousands of those and all of a sudden it became the shop became way more profitable than just selling a surf board for 10 bucks so that really set me off and later on <clears throat> excuse me again, I sold uh, or started making Surfline uh, jams and got into the clothing business because clothes are marked up more, it's more profitable, and you can sell clothes to everybody where you can't sell surfboards to everybody. So I got in the clothing business through the T-shirts. And through all of that, a guy named Ricky Ralston, Crazy Certs was a T-shirt company that started and Ricky started like I do. I'm renting surfboards in Waikiki, and I'm trying to make a buck any way I can. And at the end of the day, Ricky had set up a little um, easel on Kalakaua on the sidewalk right at Waikiki, and he would paint T-shirts. Each one was different, and he'd paint them with a little brush, an airbrush. And he was selling T-shirts, and so about 5 o'clock, I'd been surfing and renting surfboards and back and forth on the beach, and 
I'd say, how'd you do today, Ricky? He said, God, you know, great. I sold so many shirts and made 20 bucks. And uh, I said, I had a great day, too. I rented a bunch of surfboards and sold two, and I made, I made 40 bucks or whatever it was. So we'd go out and celebrate and have a couple of beers together and buy a hamburger because we'd both been, this is successful business now, big business. And Ricky started Crazy Shirts from that easel and had hundreds of stores all over the country franchised those and I opened the Hobie stores but it just shows how a small little thing and I think what drives it is the passion you know you can have college educations or not know all the stuff but if you're really you can sell stuff when you really believe in it and Ricky really was artistic and believed in his artist stuff that he was doing and I was really stoked on the surfboards they work so good having a new shape and a why and the kids love that and that's what starts industries mm -hmm. is your passion for it drives you uh, into making it work it just does so that's how the surfboard thing so then I came over here and opened these stores in California and then I <clears throat> I had sold, as I said, the, the one in Honolulu, and a good friend of mine, Rob Tebow and Sandy Saxton, uh, had gone to college. Uh, they were way younger than I was, and they went to Santa Barbara, where I did, and they got in the restaurant business, and the chart house had started, uh, other restaurants where all the surfers were hanging out, and that was the beginning of a salad bar, and then other guys would come in, so it was cheaper, and the first... Uh, Steakhouse was Buzz's Steak and Lobster in Honolulu on Beach Walk Road, and we used to all hang out there. And I think this is a good analogy. Uh, I would go there as soon as it opened. Buzz was a neat guy, and he had this. Then Joey Cabell was a waiter there, and uh, they were all learning the business. And a top sirloin in those days was two dollars and fifty cents, and a T-shirt at the Hobie Shop was two dollars and fifty cents. And so I would take T-shirts down to Buzz's Steak and Lobster and trade them for a steak dinner. And if you can believe it, for the next fifty years to this day. A top sirloin and a T-shirt are the same price. No way. So a top sirloin at a chart house, and they vary at different restaurants, obviously, but are basically twenty-five yeah. bucks. And a T-shirt today at Hobie's is twenty-five bucks. That's so funny. And I never so for, about that. for the last fifty years, I've been trading T-shirts for top <laughs> sirloins at chart houses and different restaurants because they they just marched right up the inflation scale. With the t uh, price of T-shirts and could, top sirloin, could you do like a sweater for a filet mignon? Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Up the a little bit, a little bit. Uh, I want a ribeye. <laughs> yeah, get an extra hit there. And so then, other restaurants, uh, especially in Honolulu, started where you'd cook your own. And uh, you'd go into the restaurant, and instead of sitting down at a table, there would be a, a refrigeration, like in a butcher shop, mm -hmm. and you say, okay, I want that one. And by then, top sirloins had gone up to maybe 350 or whatever, and you could go buy one for $1.75 right out of the meat counter, and then you'd go cook it yourself and get your salad at the salad bar and usually while it was cooking you'd go sit down and this is the surf mentality which is important in that so the surfers could go in there and we'd kind of look around well i want to think about buying that steak and and so maybe you'd go over and just have a salad so for a buck i think you could buy the, a salad 
or all you could eat at the salad bar. So you'd go sit down at a table and you'd watch some gal would be putting her steak on the grill and she'd go back to her table and then you'd go up to the grill with your salad plate and scoop her cha- uh, steak <laughs> and take it back and you're eating her steak and she's having her salad. When she goes up there and she's looking, now there's a dozen steaks cooking out there and you're right. not sure which one is yours. Right. And she's, well, I thought that was mine and I'm watching because I'm already eating half of her steak and so this is the way surfers got along in those days we didn't have any money and that's why we can't have cool businesses like that anymore <laughs> that's right they soon changed that so the steak guy and the guy that owned that steak and uh it was um what was the name of that it was uh pat gallagher and uh owned that steak and so they put little sticks would uh, with different names on them so when you would buy your raw steak you'd put that stick in your steak yeah. so you could claim it because yeah. this this didn't last very long because all these not. deals yeah <laughs> you know they were too good so the you know the restaurateurs got wise to it yeah. and changed that but it's just the way it was surfers were finagling around all the time to how they could keep surfing without a real job because right. there was no night jobs unless you're a bartender and stuff. So that was just one one thing about clothes. And so I came back over here and then um, I got a call from Rob Tebow and Sandy Saxton and they were opening a new restaurant in Maui called Chemo's. And so <clears throat> Tebow said, we're building a new building. And I had had a store there, but when I sold the Honolulu store, I sold the Maui store too, so it was not a Hobie store anymore. So there was no Hobie stores for a period of time, maybe a couple of years, in any of the Hawaiian Islands. They'd been there for 10 years, but then they changed their name to Lightning Bolt or other stores, and I had come over here because I was the only one that could use the Hobie name. So they call me up and they say, God, we got this great location on Front Street in Lahaina. You got to come over in the building. It's going to have a restaurant and a great bar. But right in front of the entrance, we've got room for a retail store. We want you to put a Hobie store. And I said, God, I'm so busy over here. Well, you got to come over and look at it. So I fly over to Maui, and these were good friends of mine. And it was a great location, and I could see the potential. So I said, okay, I'm in. And so I had to build a, the rack and the place to put the cash register and do the interior of the little store. And uh, they were doing the same with the restaurant. And uh, so everybody was working there, going to open in June 15th or whatever it was. And uh, so Tebow comes to me one day, and I'm inventory putting inventory in the store. And he said, you know, all the waiters, I want them to wear Aloha shirts. And you're the only one that has a good Aloha shirt. You know, I, I need to buy it i gotta have a discount and i said well i'll think about it t but i we always called him t for t bow his last name his name was rob thebow a french name but we just called it t-bo so t or Tebow. and uh i said let me th- give that some thought he said, i said because you know <clears throat> now that the restaurant's opening by that time they had opened and, d- and doing trial dinners and everything you know last night you charged me for my dinner full price so maybe we can make some kind of a deal. So the next day, we were having a beer, and we were laughing because the restaurant was open. I got the Hobie shop is open. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I can't 
sell you discounted stuff unless you're a stock owner. I'll trade you one share of Hobie stock if you give me a share of Chemo stock. So we made a deal right over a beer sitting at Chemo's restaurant the first day it opened. So he got all his Aloha shirts for all the waiters and waitresses at a, 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 what we call the team deal discount, uh, which is really half price. And I got employee prices on all the meals and the beer at the bar. Whatever you bought, I got half price at that. So uh, over the years, of course, the Hobie shops have changed. I've sold them. I still have chemo stock. To this day, I still get uh, half price at all the restaurants. And now it's called TNFs. They're not just chemos. It's Dukes, yep. Dukes in Malibu, Dukes in uh, Huntington Beach, Dukes in La Jolla, Dukes in Waikiki. Uh, so all of that is TNS restaurants, and Rob Tebow and Sandy Saxton have both passed away now, and their wives have inherited that com- company, and I'm still a stockholder. Do they honor your pricing? Yeah, when you go in there and eat. Well, yeah. So I get a, a team, a t- whatever the the t- uh, the employees get, I get yeah. a half price. Good for you. And as, and I own stock, so I even get a check. Uh, from them every every quarter amazing so it's just amazing how that was in 19 that started 1974 i think so i've been 25 45 years been an owner of dukes and chemos which are now called tns restaurants uh so that was one of my great business deals that would just change but that's how you did it you just traded stock well it's funny you keep mentioning like oh we were just a couple of beach kids didn't know what we were doing but a lot of the business decisions you made are really sophisticated like that deal with the hiltons to get them to make this like that's a sophisticated move and when the banks won't do it just subvert the banks go somewhere else go somewhere else and the banks end up regretting their decision by not working with you well that's right they could have had a lot better loans and we could have but they didn't they want would to have loved to finance hobie in its infancy oh, knowing what it's become yeah now. but now oh yeah. absolutely but that's you know that's why beach guys at that time were thought of as kind of conniving but they like you are. say it was it was business and Hobie didn't he didn't want to do the business I like right. that part of it that was kind of my thing so I really enjoyed some way to get around whatever mm-hmm. we were doing uh, and we did sell the t- we had, we started the t-shirt company and we had to borrow money for that and that was the first one we sold when it did uh, when it became valued at fifty thousand dollars we sold it uh, that we should have kept because it got to be a huge company but we couldn't get loans until we went to yeah. outside got private funding yep. was really better than bank funding totally and, but we really didn't know the nuances all but i figured it out yeah oh you make a misstep here or yeah. there but yeah just it works start something new um what was the story with emney well that's a great story emney was a one-legged chinaman and this is going back further back so when i first went to Hawaii in 19 51 and 52, I can't remember exactly when it was. The, as I said earlier, the planes couldn't fly except Pan Am, and that was really costly, and they only went like once a month or something. So I went on the Lura Lane uh, the first time to Hawaii out of San Pedro, five-day trip, $144 round trip on the Lura Lane wow. to Honolulu and back. So I bought a round-trip ticket. I'd been tending bar at the Sandpiper in Laguna, saved the money, wanted to go over. And all we knew was there's really great surf. 
<coughs> over there and hardly anybody had been over and come back i mean there'd been older guys lauren harrison had gone over one time uh, and we'd heard stories from him but there became a, a picture in the la times that uh clarence maki a famous uh hawaii uh, surf photographer took and it had a picture of a wave at makaha it was george downing uh was on it i think wally Forsythe. And I forget who else. There's three guys on it. And he tilted it. So it looked bigger than it really was. But we all saw that in the LA Times. And everybody went, oh, my God, we got to go to Makaha. Nobody was surfing the North Shore because the boards, they were they were surfing uh, uh, hot curl boards. You know, they didn't have fins on them. Mm -hmm. But Makaha, because of the bowl, you could get in over on the edge and drop into the channel there and ride that. And so then we took over the state-of-the-art balsa boards with a fin until fiberglass became available right after the war in 1946. We couldn't put a real fin on. You had a fin that would maybe be an inch deep. You know, it would give you a little a tracking ability, but it wouldn't let you turn, really. You had to drag your foot or your hand in the water to really turn the board. And a hot curl had a V bottom, so that gave you a little bit of ability to turn it. But when we went over, when I say we, Buzzy uh, Trent was there, Walter Hoffman was in the Navy. I had gotten out of the Korean War because I was older. I had gotten out of the service, and I was on the GI Bill. I got $26 a week, which was a fortune to us then. And so I went to graduate school at the University mm -hmm. of Hawaii when I went over on the Lura Lane, and I got the GI Bill, $26 a week, and I lived with Buzzy and Walter and everybody in the Quonset Hut in Makaha, and they were living off my $26 half the time, too. But... <clears throat> Getting back to the Amney story, we were living in the Quonset hut, and Y and I, the town where Makaha is, was almost a non-town. There was just a few Hawaiian houses there. There was a little general store, and there was an, kind of an open-air movie theater. And this guy, Amney, this one-legged Chinaman, and his wife had a little thatched You call it a store now, but it was really the build-up on... Uh, four by fours off the ground you took a couple of steps up and you know, there's a space underneath because it rained and there would be mud and everything so he had this wooden floor and it was kind of open he could close it down it had shutters that went up and a thatched roof and he was a tailor and made suits in those days chinese were brought over from china to harvest the sugarcane yep. and pineapples and uh, other orientals were living there portuguese and they were importing. my grandfather ended up in he was born in uh Kauai. oh he was. his parents were portuguese um indentured servants basically sure that came over to work like the family debt off by working in the sugarcane fields in hawaii Kauai. and that's my grandfather was just born to two indentured servants, basically. Well, that who then didn't really end up raising him, you know, because they didn't have any of the resources sure, or anything. So he like that. ended up living in a junkyard, picking parts for the junkyard owner at the age of eight or ten years old or something. Well, that's the way life was. Totally. Then. And so all these uh, foreigners, Portuguese, Chinese, 
Orientals that came over and worked in the sugarcane. So they eventually would marry, and women would come over to. They'd marry a lot of their Hawaiian people, but other Portuguese and Chinese women that would come over. So M. Nee was a tailor and would make them a suit because in those days you worked out in a pair of shorts and a pineapple on a cane field. It was dirty, terrible work, but you had to have a suit when you got married. That was part of the tradition of marriage was to have a suit. So M. Nee made their suits for him. And, you know, I don't know how much he charged, but it wasn't very much. And he wasn't making, nobody was making any money then. Yeah, yeah. It was just <clears throat> grinding it out. And so we were always surfing. Those days, there were only trunks that you could buy in a store were like a McGregor trunk that matched a top. And they were called a cabana set. And so like in Palm Springs, if you went to the movie stars that would go to Palm Springs and sit around the pool, you'd be in a cabana set. You'd have a matching shirt that opened in the front, would button in the front, would match your trunks. Well, beach guys weren't wearing that. There's right. no way we're going to wear that. So, I mean, I've got a bunch of pictures of myself just where you cut off Levi's. Uh, you know, thigh length, and they're it kind of fray, and you'd surf in a pair of, of Levi's. Mm -hmm. The pockets would fill up with water, and the, just the way it was. And so one day, I don't know who it was, but we got M. Nee to make a pair of trunks and said, could you make a pair of trunks? You're making these suits. And yeah, I could, he could do that. So he went, there's a wholesaler in Honolulu named G. Vonham where you bought wholesale cloth. And so he bought cloth like, done a denim like Levi's are made out of and you could buy a roll of that and then he would buy a couple of rolls of different colors of ribbon that would be like half an inch wide so he made these trunks out of denim material like Levi's were only we had them cut them so they fit better than the Levi did and it gave you a little more room in the crotch and everything. It wasn't so you know, you'd get sand in your Levi's and it was uncomfortable. You mm -hmm. know, you're laying in the sand. You never laid on a towel at the beach. I mean there's never a, a surfer alive that's gonna lay on a towel. You'd lay in the hot sand and bring it around you and your your Levi's would get sand all over and on your thighs and scratch and be uncomfortable. So we got him to make a pair of trunks and so we call them M knees and we'd put the color stripe you know we had two choices I think red and blue or something down the blue thing well <clears throat> pretty soon we're making and a pair of trunks was two dollars and fifty cents a new pair of M knees and so uh, it took him forever it was you know he was sitting there hand sewing them and his wife was there and he's in a he his one leg is cut off right above the knee and he didn't have a prosthesis or anything he would add one crutch and he'd hobble around and go from a little sewing machine and cut over here it'd take him forever to make the darn pair of trunks so you'd order him ahead if you're going back to the mainland you wanted to have two or three of these because this is a real pair of trunks from hawaii m knee was a big deal and and it had a, the Outrigger Canoe Club started making them too. It had a flap that went across your waist. It buttoned uh, in the middle and then it went around to your side and buttoned again. Mm. And the cool thing was not to button that side part. So this flap that was two inches wide, a waistband, would come around, you'd button it right in the center. And the, the part that went over to the side of your body was about six inches long. You'd just let that hang. That was the cool look. If you had a pair of M knees, you never buttoned that thing. Yeah, same <laughs> My kind sweater. of thing. And so M knees became 
really popular, but he had no volume. He couldn't make it. And it was just the guys, you know, different. Everybody was in the service then because of the Korean War. Yeah. <clears throat> and so the guys, <clears throat> excuse me, that were in the Navy would come out and surf there. Walter and Buzzy and <clears throat> Ted Crane and different guys would come over and stay for a week or a month, whatever they could afford, and go back. They'd all take a pair of M-Knees with you. So uh, if you had a Hobie T-shirt, well, that was before the Hobie T-shirt, the M-Knee trunk was. This was like in the early 50s. We're talking about 53, 54, 55. So I was living over there that whole time and had M-Knee make three or four, five, six pairs for me. And so finally, when I did go home on the Lura Lane, uh, it was a great event, and I kept talking to M. Nee. I said, M. Nee, I'm going to leave in a month now. I want those two extra pair of trunks that I've ordered. You said you'd have them ready. I'm going to leave the 1st of July or whatever it was, the date. And, oh, no problem, Deke. I have them ready for you. And so every day I lived right. The Quonset that we lived on the beach was really 100 yards from where his shop was. So I'd see him almost every day. How those trunks come? Oh, yeah, yeah, not worry. And so it's getting closer and closer. And I had a pair of orange ones made because now he had different colors of denim besides the blue denim he'd get yellow and blue and green and whatever he wanted and so i'd ordered these two extra pair plus the ones i already had and uh, i said m knee it's a week i'm going next week on the lairland not to worry not to worry he tells me so in those days, of course, there's no security. There's none of the stuff we have today. And when the Luralene would leave, it would if you knew somebody that was going, it was a big deal to come aboard and have a going sailing away party. So all the beach boys that were working at Waikiki, Wada, Steamboat, Blackout Whaley, Rabbit Kekai, Ajama, all those guys were good friends of mine because, see, we had brought over the newest high-tech surfboards, and they were still surfing hot curls, and we had a new, uh, actually, I didn't even have a Hobie. Hobie wasn't around yet. I took over a Matt Kivlin, made a, a balsa board for me under a, at the Sip and Surf bar under a tree out and back. Wow. Uh, I paid 50 bucks for that. A brand new uh, Matt Kivlin. I took over on the Laurel Lane and uh, rode it the whole time I was there. But the Hawaiians, we got along really good with them. We'd go to all their parties. There wasn't very many Howleys there then. There was maybe 10 or 15 of us. And, you know, we'd take out the Hawaiian girls, and they didn't care. Uh, we were their buddies because we let them use our boards, and that's what they wanted. And so when I left, I gave them my board. That's what we did. We gave them. You left your surfboard with them because they didn't have balsa wood and fiberglass. They couldn't make them. And you could still make them in the mainland, but how to get them over there, all that, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Right. So I left my board with Rabbit and Wada and the beach guys, so they all wanted to come see me off. I was their good friend, and they, I was such a good friend that they took, we'd, you know, be on outrigger canoes paddling out in races and doing stuff. They made a... You know, a paddle is long. It has a long arm to it. And those what we really use. They made a miniature one for me. I have it still right here in the museum. It's about two and a half feet long. Outrigger canoe on it. They rode on it. And they gave me it as a present because I gave them my surfboard. Wow. And there's that real Hawaiian aloha spirit that they all had. And we all, we fell into the Hawaiian lifestyle, you know. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to eat what they were eating, drink what they were drinking. We wanted to go out with Hawaiian chicks. You know, it was all about 
we're part Hawaiian now, mm-hmm. and we stayed there long enough. I was there like a year the first time, and maybe not quite a year, probably seven, eight months, I guess. But um, so when I left on the Lurling, God, Dick's leaving on the Lurling. We all got to go down, and they're bringing cheap wine, and we all come aboard, and we're up on deck and drinking wine. And the last day, I said, MD, I got to have these trunks. And he said, not to worry. I've been, I've been worrying for like a month. So the, we're down on the Lurl, and we go down. It's going to leave at 4 o'clock. You go down at like at 2 o'clock and start the party. In the gangway, if you know somebody on there, you tell them their room number, and you can come aboard. So all the beach guys knew what cabin I was in, and they were all up there. And we are on the deck drinking wine and having a great party. And somebody yelled and said, M. Nee, M. Nee coming. And here's M. Nee. He drives us. Old, I think it was a Model A Ford. He had an old wreck of a car. I don't even know if he owned it. He probably borrowed it. But he drove all the way from Waianae to the Lura Lane, and he came up on this one crutch and hobbled up the gangway. Hey, Dick, I have your trunks. <laughs> and he delivered them on the Lura Lane. At the very at last the minute. At the very last minute. I couldn't believe it. Here he's hobbling around, and he gets in the party where he's saying, M.D., you got to have some wine and get half drunk and everything. And he no, no, no. And then, anyway, he's talking half Chinese and everything. Yeah. It was just a different world. And so pretty soon, though, they blow the the horn on the Lurley and they're going to leave and they take the gangplank and is gone I got my trunks and I'm happy and half the beach boys they're still on board in those days the ship's pulling out and they're still on board and I said oh the guys are saying rabbit and the guy oh, not to worry we'll we get off and uh, so we go out through the harbor and the Lurley comes right along Waikiki so you know it's putting along and it's a big deal they go real slow there because the tradition was when you were leaving, the Hawaiians would give you lays. I had lays up to my ears around my neck, and then you throw them off at Waikiki, and if it drifts to the beach, you know, theoretically, you're going to come back again. You know, Hawaii was like going on the other side of the world in those mm-hmm. days. It was a big deal. So when you get off Waikiki, they're going, you know, I don't know, three or four knots, and you throw everybody's throwing their lays off. So I, we get out there, and I've got half the beach boys are still on board, and pretty soon two outrigger canoes come out from the beach, and all the beach boys jump off that, uh, the Lura Lane uh, and jump in the water, and uh, the outriggers pick them all up and they put the lays on and you come back and it's a really an emotional thing. I mean I'm crying tears running down my cheeks I got my knee trunks my boards I've left in Waikiki and here's all these Hawaiian guys that giving me this trophy good friend you know it just it meant so much now everything's so quick you get on an airplane yeah. you don't know any of the beach boys nobody There's cares no if you're coming or going you're just another number I mean it was so different then and I just I, I want to emphasize that it's the, a cinematic ending the emotions and the friendships you developed over yeah. that time and it's, to this day i mean i go back over there and of course rabbits passed away but until he did rabbit and i were great friends and a wada and a steamboat and i still see their kids steamboat jr now <laughs> i see him. by the way one of the <laughs> One of the uh, my favorite bits of feedback we got from the last few episodes I posted was somebody referenced 
that your friends had the best nicknames. They're like Slippy, Steamboat, <laughs> Peanuts. Like, well, they, everybody had a nickname then. It was true. I mean, all the Beach Boys did, and uh, and they were all great guys. And you know, it was just a fun. It was never about making money. It was just living life, and it was pleasure. You'd yeah. go surf. You'd sit on the beach and play ukuleles, drink some wine, uh, go to a party that night, hustle some chicks. Uh, go back to the beach the next day, have a little rice and beans for breakfast. I mean, it was just an easy, fun, but you built relationships that have lasted, in my case, 50, 60, 70 years, because I was 20. So yeah, it's been 70 years. Have you maintained relationships with the Hilton family? Well, uh, yes, to some degree. Uh, of course, Baron has passed away, and Davey uh, is now the head of the Hilton family. So I called him up last year, and I said, you got to come down to the museum at Surfing Heritage and, uh, and make a donation. You're an old surfer. <clears throat> so he did. Hilton Hotels uh, gave a Surfing Heritage a donation last year. Awesome. Congrats. So that was good. Um, I want to ask you some personal questions. Sure. You're welcome to dodge them or just <laughs> simply decline to answer. But they're things that have come up through listener feedback. Um, you were having a lot of unprotected sex around the world. True. Do you worry about or do you think about have you sired any children that you're unaware <laughs> of? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it was, you know, sex was a different deal altogether. It was like the rest of life. But it then. still worked the same way in terms of pregnancy and biology. <laughs> that's right. That didn't change. And that's why it was so hard to have sex. The girls were scared to death of getting pregnant. Of and uh, in Laguna, uh, in those early years, there were no condoms and rubbers. and none of, no, You didn't have any of that stuff. So if you could finally get laid which didn't happen very often in those days and somebody did get pregnant we went to tijuana and <clears throat> there were uh, people at different areas and towns i guess that made abortions that weren't doctors and that scared everybody uh, so you're scared about that getting infected or whatever so tijuana had doctors trained at usc medical center were actual mds in tijuana and we when it was the gentlemanly thing to do at the time to take your girlfriend to Tijuana. You'd go down with her, and you'd sign in at the doctor's office. They called it Laguna Sickness. So they had a register that you would sign, and and maybe they had La Jolla Sickness too. I don't know, but yeah. since I was from Laguna, you signed in, a, why are you here? And you'd just say Laguna Sickness, and the, they would... Uh, you know, a full medical doctor in a, a clinic would give an abortion and the girls would come home that same day. Yeah. So that's how we solved that problem. Uh, but that was that was just during that one period. Yeah. And obviously things changed when condoms came out. And of course the pill changed everything. But up until that point, um, you know, you just did what you had to do. But what about... Like you told the story about being in Tahiti with the girl getting fish guts on her chest, right. you know, and like there were women that you were with throughout the world. Yes. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, do you I, think about yeah, that? Yeah, I have thought about it a lot. Uh, and actually, I'm, I know for a fact, well, I don't know it's mine, but I know for a fact two girls that I was with had baby that, uh, you know, in those days you couldn't take tests and find out yeah. whose uh, blood and all the right 
chemistry to it. So I don't know, but I know two girlfriends that I was with did get pregnant and had their kids and had them up for adoption. Oh, really? Nine months after you were with them, basically? Yeah, more or less. Whereabouts in the world? Well, one was in Santa Barbara where oh, okay. I was going to school, and another one was in Honolulu. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, you know, it just, uh, I mean, the you are so motivated. I mean, guys have, you know, sex urge, especially when you're 20 and 30, and, you know, your hormones are running, and you do what you, you could. I mean, you know, and that's why... Uh, sex was just so different then and when you were having if you did convince the girl that it was okay then you talked her into it or whatever reasons she would let you have sex which wasn't very often it was a rarity <clears throat> then they'd always say well you got to pull out mm. i mean pull As out if that would do was a surfing term but it was also a sex term right, right. That you would pull out and so you know i'm gonna pull out i'm gonna pull out well, sometimes you did. In the moment, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you did. Make a game time decision. <laughs> so pull an audible. But that there again was how life has changed over the years. Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing to see the change. Yeah. Um, can we recap the Patty story? Um, we talked. <clears throat> you and I talked about it off air, and I don't know if you do want to discuss it on air. But you and Patty have reconnected later in life. Well, now I can't remember. So, David, if did we talk about Patty before I went to Africa last two months ago? What? You and I did off air. Okay. But not on air. So just to bring listeners up to speed, Patty was is John Whitmore's daughter that you... No, not did. his daughter. John Whitmore's wife was Thelma, and it was Thelma's little sister. Oh. But I thought John, it was Whitmore's daughter this whole no, time. No, but John Whitmore raised her. Gotcha. So the... Uh, what happened is when he married, see, there again, their life was pretty troublesome. And when John married Thelma, they didn't have any money. He's selling used cars, as I said, uh, in Cape Town. And he married Thelma, but Thelma's the older daughter, and she was working, taking care of her young sister and her young brother. Okay. And so when when John married Thelma, he married her with the two siblings gotcha. and moved into the house. So they were like his kids because he raised them from, you know, the time they were like 10 years old. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and you did say that in the previous episode, but I just, my brain didn't catch it. But I remember it now. Um, so just to bring listeners up to speed, and even though they probably listened to those episodes... Patty was the one who you had a romance with in South Africa. You were kind of uh, in love with her, but you had to come back home. And so you guys kind of mutually agreed that even though you'd like to make it work, you can't stay in South Africa. She can't come to America. So you both go pursue your own lives and get married and have kids, presumably, um, and then have reconnected later in life is the point that I wanted to get to. Well, we didn't disconnect. Okay. In total. So you're right, what you just summed up. So she was 17, I was 32, the first time in 1959 when I lived there, and we had this romance, and we were in love. You know, I was been out in the jungle and by myself for a year and a half or whatever it had been by the time I got to Cape Town. Uh, she was young, and uh, you know, to meet an American and surf and all that. She was enthusiastic, so we had this romance, and she was living with John, and I'm living there too. 
So when we when I did part and go up the coast of St. Francis and Jay Bay, um, you know, it was hard to leave her. And so I came back two years later, when I, or a year and a half later, when I sent John a container of resin and blanks. And then I flew down to Cape Town. But because I had the Hobie stores, I couldn't stay forever. So I flew down, showed him how to make surfboards with all the new resin fiberglass catalyst and and the blanks clark foam blanks that we had by then is this was i got home in 1961 so um it was 62 or 3 when i flew back i i sent the container first then i got an airplane and flew to cape town and i was there for i'm gonna say maybe two weeks so patty and i were together again and then the romance flared and you know we talked about i couldn't really stay there because i had the hobie shops going and patty she could have come to america but she just was frightened of it uh it was too far too big she grew up in the family with her brother and her sister right there and her mom uh she just couldn't make that that break the the societies were different you know she didn't know anything about america and she was didn't have enough self-confidence i mean by 17 so she was only 19 or 20 when i came back the second time and i was 34 or whatever i was so um i could have gotten a visa i guess i didn't even try but we didn't do it so it was always i'm gonna come back when i did come back i've been back 10 times so it's not like i didn't go back over all these years so at one point she got married um i got married i take my wife shirley to cape town to be with the whitmores and to see them we stay shirley and i stay with patty and her husband uh i mean and they moved from cape town um up to windhook in uh and uh namibia and so we uh, drove uh, with john and his wife and and my wife shirley and we all drove up and stayed with patty up there so you know we kind of constantly and we would sneak away and we didn't have sex but i mean it was we cared about each other and we had this early romance and we still had that desire to be with each other and we were an emotional way and so uh, my did your spouses sense anything uh, well i mean my spouse i knew about it i don't know what she told uh, what was his name uh he was a German guy who had immigrated from Germany to uh, Namibia, and she married him. And they had two kids, and I know their kids. Uh, I mean, since then, she's told, because I'm sure it was Hans. Uh, uh, he died a few years ago. So this is what, so over the last 50 years, we've been riding back and forth. She, um, you know, I've been there 10 times. John and Thelma, Patty never came to America, but her sister, Thelma, came and stayed with us. So they've been back, you know, telling about us. Then I take my mom to Cape Town. When my mom was a teacher in Laguna, when she retired, I take my mom and my wife, and we go back a second time. And my mom and my wife and I stay with Patty. So it was really the family, my family and the Whitmore family became like brothers and sisters are just really involved i mean christmas and phone calls phones got better phone calls and then in the later years we skype each mm -hmm. other so we've we've maintained this relationship now i kind of laugh about it because here i went back uh in may to make that uh 
you know, I was with uh, Richard Yalen was making a historic documentary on how the endless summer came about, and he took me back to South Africa and was filming the places that I had surfed and Cape St. Francis and the people I'd met, and we saw them. And of course, Whitmore is gone, but his daughter, uh, Petta, I stayed with her for 10 days and we're with the family and the kids, and when I was first there, Petta and Shelly were seven and eight years old. Now they're grandmothers, and I'm playing with their grandkids. I'm 90 now, and they, you know, this has been over a 70-year period. I mean, it's a huge time of your life, and we've both impacted each other's families and lifestyle and mentality so completely, especially John, it changed his whole life and his family's life. Uh, you know, now they've got a farm and they have money. And they, he was a Hobie Cat dealer, the Hobie Surfboard. I got him the Moray Pope uh, Boogie Board dealership, became the Bruce Brown Film Distributor, John Severson Surfer Magazine Distributor. He's a smart guy. He took advantage of me opening the door for him. And it changed his whole life, his wife, his kids' lives, changed everything. Yeah. It, it changed surfing in South Africa. Yeah. If I hadn't met him, and who knows, they would have surfed, obviously, but it wouldn't have come about as soon as it did, uh, and the same way it did. Right. So it's been amazing. And so now I go back, and I'm with <laughs> Patty. So here it is. I'm 90 three months ago. She's now 75. And <laughs> so... And you're both single. And her... And I'm divorced. Uh, and her husband died. And she lives in, in Windhoek, still in Namibia. And, you know, it's just amazing. We kind of have to laugh about over this romance that's gone off and on in a, I don't want to say a sexual way, but you know, we were, we were fond of each other. We cared about each other and we still do. <clears throat> what, what is the status of the relationship at this point? Well, do you want to spend time together? Does she? Well, it's so difficult. She owns property in Windhoek in Namibia. And if she leaves the country, she has to sell, the government takes the property and they give her a pittance for it. So she lives there. She owns apartments and commercial buildings now in the capital of Windhoek, and she gets an income from that. And if she left, she would lose all that. Yeah. And that's her home. She has relationships, and her, uh, her kids are there. So she just won't leave, you know, yeah. and I can't blame her. And then the same, I'm not going to go down there. Living down there in Windhoek, is not i mean south africa is way better than that and she can't even live in south africa because then she would lose her property rights so the government controls and everything make that just next to impossible unless you just are going to walk away from everything yeah. and neither one of us i don't want to get married again at no. 90 i mean that sure. doesn't make sense so but we've just kind of resolved the thing it is what it is and it was a wonderful thing Still is. I mean, Still it, is. it really is a romantic story. Story, exactly. To think like you connect with somebody that childhood um, love, like idealized version of love without the cynicism that, you know, creeps into your mind later in life and responsibility and all that. That childlike love is so um, intoxicating. And then to think that you can kind of revisit that later in life is also a really whimsical idea. And that you can kind of 
also commit your life to somebody else. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. But the other thing can still happen along the way and even after the fact. Well, I think so many early relationships are revolved around sex. And at least they were in my time. I don't know if they are anymore. But, you know, you change. People change. They grow up, they change. I think I haven't changed a whole lot, but I do. You know, my values are different. You're, you just have different needs and wants. And we had such a connection that that will last our lives forever. Yeah. I mean, it just, we're bonded, and it's a deep, deep friendship as much as anything else. You know, you just care about of each course. other, yeah. and you still do. And we talk, and... Um, you know, I hope to go back again. When this movie, <clears throat> I say movie, historic documentary comes out in March or April, the producer is talking about taking it back to Cape Town and having a grand opening. And certainly I would go back and yeah, great. And uh, Patty would come down and, you know, it would just be fun to, to be with her and be there. But it's just a different time, a different place. You know, it just... It's been too long and too far apart. Yeah. And the cultures and the lifestyles are too different. Yeah. A um, couple of questions about you're so sharp and you remember so much detail from such a long time ago. Um, do you ever experiment with drugs throughout all of these years? And what's your policy? Uh, well, you know, I grew up before the drug thing kind of started. Uh, certainly, I've smoked some grass. I don't, I've never smoked a regular cigarette. You know, <laughs> I tell this quick story, but I, when I was in the Army, uh, got drafted for the Korean War, and I was at Fort Ord, and if you're after boot camp, you're in forced marches and out camping and everything, and, you know, they'll say, all right, five-minute uh, smoke break. Everybody light up. In those days, everybody smoked. And I would be, you know, he had your name on your, uh, your military thing. And so the sergeant would see that I wasn't smoking. All right, Mets, get over there and clean up those butts before we carry on the march. I said, Sarge, I didn't smoke. I give a shit. Clean those butts up. And so I'm cleaning those butts up. I said, this stinks. So the next day I bought a pack of camels at the PX. I carried them the whole time I was within the army. And I'd pull a cigarette out and I'd be pounding it on my, my wrist. <clears throat> and I'd say, I'm just lighting up, Sarge. I'm just lighting up. I didn't want to clean up all those butts. I wasn't a smoker. I did smoke some joints over the years, uh, but I didn't. I don't like the smoke aspect of it. But when they put it in a brownie, I love brownies. That's a whole different treatment. Oh, edibles? <laughs> so Still that, or, or just? <laughs> well, I remember Joyce, one of my girlfriends, lived in Hawaii, and she was cooking brownies and putting a lot of grass in there. And, God, that was a whole different mentality because, I love those brownies, but uh, I never really got into it. You know, it was occasionally uh, a few times uh, different. You know, I've been around it all my life. God, I mean, uh, Coke came out in Aspen and uh, where I attended bar, and everybody's doing Coke and all the drugs, and it's just not my bag. I don't need to. I'm pretty revved up anyway. I mean, yeah, no give kidding. me a glass of wine and a, a shot of tequila or something and i can go with anybody so you do consume alcohol though in terms of yeah and i still have i last night i was down at turks and had a couple of beers and yeah, yeah i mean i like to have a couple of drinks and i mean i'm more it's not i don't like it especially but i do it from a social standpoint sure. uh 
and certainly, I mean, I'm still hustling girls, and so if I'm down like last night at Turks, there's a couple gals I know that come in there, and so if there's girls around, I'm way more apt to have a couple of drinks than if they're not. Yeah. If I'm just talking to guys, I can bullshit with anybody yeah. without needing it. Well, I mean, maybe it's obvious the reason why I asked about drugs. Um, you know, government is uh, deregulating a lot of what used to be illegal, and hospitals and doctors are using certain drugs or previously now they're medicine Medical, but, you know sure. mushrooms weed that All sort that. of stuff to treat things ptsd or whatever and so um but realistically we don't know the long-term effects of things and how it affects and it's almost impossible to say like if i never did drugs i would be this much sharper or uh -huh. I did and or the flip side of that yeah, is did I did them. do drugs and, and now, now I have brighter kind Picture. of creative yeah or whatever. So I'm always curious to hear people's personal experiences with them. Um, but I mean, you're and who knows which variable has kept you so sharp? What about diet? What's your diet like currently? Well, my mom was ahead of her time as a teacher. She was well read, well educated, and she cooked all our meals of course three meals a day well not all because when my dad had the restaurant i'd eat down there but she was always intent on me eating right and at those days i don't really know what right was but it was vegetables and it was fruit so for breakfast we always had a couple of fruits and for lunch or dinner i always had to eat my vegetables before i could eat the meat or whatever chicken or whatever else it was mm -hmm. and so to this day I try and eat five fruits and vegetables a day. So usually at breakfast, you know, I'll have strawberries and uh, a half a grapefruit or an orange or uh, at least two or three. At breakfast, it's really easy for me to do two or three fruits. And at lunch, I always have an apple, a banana, you know, something like that. And then I eat vegetables for dinner. I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian, but I mean, if I'm having, uh, like last Thursday is a meatloaf night at Turks, and so I order the meatloaf, you get a huge amount of meatloaf, I eat half of the meatloaf, and I eat the vegetables, and I take the meatloaf home for sandwiches for two days, uh, so I'd, I ate all the vegetables last night, and some of the potato and a little bit of the meat, so I just kind of... Fruits and vegetables, a little you know, bit of I think animal protein, yeah. but not a lot of processed food. No fast food, no. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes you're when I'm driving back and forth and you end up uh, eating a Big Mac or something, but I hardly ever... I mean, I have a hamburger in a restaurant. Usually then I'll take... I At the Pioneer, they have a great deal on both a chicken burger and a hamburger, and I say I just want the chicken or the beef and the lettuce and the tomato, but not the bun. Mm. So I don't eat the bun. I, you know, I always say whatever works for you. Yeah. You know, I think I'm not trying to convert anybody to anything. No, but you're, you're um, aspirational, you know, like you're so active and sharp and energetic that I would love to have that level of energy even now. Well, I, you're up earlier than I am, and you got. 
You're I get up early than... and I well I work out every morning. Now. Okay, that's what I was going to ask too. What's your so exercise? I have regime? a well I've you know I always played football, ran track, and I was a good athlete in team sports and besides surfing and sailing and skiing and all those things I did. Uh, so now I <clears throat> I think stretching is really important. So I've had both my knees operated on three times, both my shoulders twice, rotocuff tears and, you know, miscus and all the stuff you have happen. So uh, both my shoulders and knees have been operated multiple times. So my joints, I have arthritis in those joints because of that. And so I've always been limber and I can touch my, I can stand up straight legged and put my hands on the ground flat, uh, which most guys can't. I can grab my toe if I'm standing on one leg and bring my heel to my butt. And most people can't do that. I mean, because I ran high hurdles and the only reason I was good at it, I mean, I was fast. I wasn't tall enough. Most high hurdlers are six, two or three or four, and they can step over the hurdler a lot easier than I can. But I was fast and I was really limber. So I could get over the hurdle as quick as they could and beat most of the tall guys of my era. Now today, if I was running as fast as I did at my best, I wouldn't be near as good as I was in my era because sure. they've gotten just way better. But because I was limber, I've, I think that's important to stay limber. So the first thing I do when I get up is do I get my blood going, just get my fingers and hands and shake and do little dances and jump around and run in place and get the blood moving. And then I do a bunch of stretching and touch my forehead to my knee with my legs straight out. Uh, I do usually 500 crunches. There's there's a lot of different ways to do sit-up type things. So I do a crunch where you lay on your back, put one leg... Uh, your heel on your knee and bring your elbow to that knee. Yep. That, that's what I call a crunch. Like the right elbow to the left, left knee. And right yeah. verse. And so I do 250 of each. So I do 500 crunches. Wow. And then I lay down and do, I, I, mean, I do different exercises different days. So I'm yeah. not doing the same thing every day. And I lay, lay flat, keep your heels on the ground, and then do sit ups. And do 25 of those with your heels on the ground. I, I can do 40 of those, but it's an effort. Uh, so I try and keep my middle strength there. And there's a bunch of exercises I do that. You know, then I used to do 300 push-ups every day. But the arthritis, because I, I ride the motorcycle, I have arthritis in my palms here. Okay. So putting my hand there really hurts my hand. Okay. So... I do dumbbells and do all kinds of exercises, uh, you know, with your biceps and triceps and, you know, all kinds of shoulder yeah. stuff uh, with that. And I have a little mini kind of a dumb little gym thing that I can do leg lifts for your thighs and uh, pull downs and, you know, different things on that. So I, it takes me about an hour an hour and a half sometimes i'm more energetic than others to do but i do that every day every morning yeah wow uh 300 push-ups is significant well i can't i know you don't do anymore, that now, but, but that's I, still yeah that's i always wild. did 300 push-ups and 500 so i can i've done a thousand sit-ups but 300 push-ups in how many uh reps in a set uh 
I do well. The first ones I can do 150. That's insane. And then then I do them at 50 increments. 150 pushups after. And then I do them 50 increments. After That's that. wild. Good for you. Um, what about meditation? Have you ever experimented with meditation? No, not really. All okay. that heady stuff of yeah. the drug era was beyond me. I just, I mean, you know, all the guys in the surf world. You know, I've been with all of them. They've certainly offered me, and we talked about stuff. Uh, Timothy Leary in Laguna, I knew him. I've been to his house a little bit. Uh, but it just it wasn't right for me somehow. Sure. I, I don't know why. You know, when I grew up, my mom had, my mo- mom and dad, my dad smoked a little bit, but we had cigarettes in the house, you know, next to the sofa. And when people would come over, there'd be a pack of camels or Marlboros or ashtrays around the house. And my mom always said, Yeah, you want a cigarette? Have it any time. I never wanted one, because, yeah. I think, because of that. Sure. And I just got in that mentality of whether it was drugs or dope or whatever i i just didn't yeah i didn't feel like i needed it i'm Dude. i'm pretty hyper anyway yeah so what's your relationship like with surfing when was the last time that you surfed and the last time i really surfed was in hawaii uh two years ago you know warm water you know the water i have a uh, neuropathy so my feet and my, I'm not getting my nerve endings are dead in my feet, and they're getting that way in my fingers. That's why I keep moving them all the time to get the blood. Your circulation starts not circulating to your extremities, mm. and so you don't have a feeling there. So the warmer water really makes it. My feet are cold all the time, uh, you know, today, whatever. Uh, then it's just because there's no blood circulation that's coming to my toes. And then I'll go rub them and get them warm. But going in the water here when it's cold just doesn't do it for me anymore. So when I go to Hawaii, but I can't get up quick enough. Yeah. That's the whole problem. So with stand-up, you know, that you've got a head start. You're already mm. up. But it's the, it's the water here. So basically I have a Hobie kayak, and it has pedals in it. So you can use it for upper body exercise with a paddle, or you can put that, go there's a little holder for it, and it has pedals in it. So I ride my bike all the time, every day. Uh, not for very long, but you know, I'll ride it for three or four miles, just to get, because I want to get that circulation and get my knees, because my knees have been operated on it. It just helps to keep them moving. Mm-hmm. So the, the kayak with the pedals, is at least I'm in the water, and it's better than riding a bike on the pavement. Yeah. Um, obviously, surfing is a physical exercise, and that's a benefit of it, but it's also different than bicycling is or kayaking sure. is or anything else. Do you miss it? Yeah, I, I miss mean, it the, a lot. The spiritual aspect well, of surfing? Well, the whole part, the... but I still live that life in the sense, you know, down in Pochi where Walter lives and Walter Hoffman I'm talking about, and... Um, <clears throat> Um, Wayne Schaefer and so that they both lived and Flippy lived there too till he passed away they all lived side by side and they, there's a vacant lot in between that we've used for partying for the last 50 years we call it the love shack we built a little uh, 
shack there that you can spend the night in. So whoever has the right girlfriend gets to use the love shack. So, I mean, I go down there, not daily, but every weekend. You know, we'll watch a football, we'll have lunch together. So there's, you know, Henry Ford's down there, a couple other guys that have come down for years. So it used to be the Pochi Surf Club. There was like 60 of us in it. There's only four left now. Uh, but we've gotten taken on young new members, but I mean, in the original ones, there's four of us left. So we still live that life. You know, we yeah. still talk about, we're looking to surf. Well, that south, <coughs> south swell has kind of stopped and we're getting the swell from the northeast. The tide's coming in and I think the surf's going to be really good in another hour. And if you were back in Hawaii next year or this year, do you think that you would try to surf? given the opportunity uh, yeah or have you given it up well i think what what i still do and i did the last time is i i just stay on my knees and stay on the board and so i'm still gonna go surf at canoes or queens and get a ride in the warm water and yeah. and just you still get the momentum and the energy level of it but you can't get up quick enough and if you don't get up quick enough then you start moving you know you're losing your balance right because with neuropathy you lose your balance anyway okay so that becomes harder i i've never done stand-up in like a key but it's too crowded yeah uh but here you can do stand-up but the water's too cold right so um do you have anything that you feel is left undone i mean you're still going full steam and you're spending time between idaho and southern california and you're traveling a bit but What's your biggest kind of ambition at this point? Well, get... I still love riding my motorcycle. I can still do that, not maybe as good as I ever could, but certainly good enough to be, you know, when I say competitive with the guys I ride with, I can, I'm not lagging behind. Are you off-road? Or... Oh, yeah, off-road. Okay. So ride single track. Okay. So, you know, we're riding little elk migration trails. So it's really technical. And you're going to fall down, but you usually are going 15 miles an hour, and you're not. So then you got shoulder pads and stuff on. You got a lot of gear on. What do you ride? Uh, a KTM 500. Okay. Uh, so you know it goes plenty fast enough, but it's got the power. It's six speed, and you know I just love getting off in the mountains and the nature thing of the thing. And that's what I like about the ocean. You know, in the kayak you can go. You know, I go up to Redfish Lake and different lakes in Idaho. And then down here, at least you're along the coast and, you know, you're in the water. The water's always been fun and been my playground. So I guess the things I still want to ride my motorcycle, I, I like what we're doing at the museum here. I think collecting all this history is important, whether we do podcasts, write it down. I think these stories, 100 years from now, people will look back and see how life was then and how surfing evolved and moved into what it is today in the Olympic Games and all the exciting things that surfing has to offer and how it started when I was a kid. That was the beginning of it. I mean, it started obviously in Hawaii in 1778, but because of the uh, influence of the religious significance in Hawaii it slowed way down and they tried to outlaw it and then when Duke uh, became the great swimmer that he was and uh, um, uh, what's his name uh, uh, there's a picture of him around here somewhere uh, I'm not sure. uh, well the, it was he was before Duke um, 
God, I know his name. I've talked to him about it all the time. But anyway, he, he was in the Olympic Games too, a great swimmer. And that's what rejuvenated surfing and why Duke is called the founder of modern day surfing because it started when, when Captain Cook discovered Hawaii. He had a, and you've seen the pictures out here, I hope, that he had an artist on board. And so we know that they were surfing in 1778. Whether they started a day before Captain Cook got there or a hundred years, we don't know. But they were surfing in 1778. But then, because the missionaries came to Hawaii and they downgraded it because they thought it was a sexual, uh, because everybody was surfing naked, girls and guys, and they put the girls in Mother Hubbard dresses, got the religious thing really strong in Hawaii, and tried to outlaw surfing, but they kept it going in the outer islands where the missionaries had no influence. And <clears throat> it was almost disappeared, but then the missionaries lost the influence as, as time and travel became more uh, common. And then the Olympic Games, the, the original Olympic Games, or the modern games, started in 1896 in Athens, Greece. And the, f the next one was in Paris in 1900. And that's where Duke qualified to go to the next Olympiads in Antwerp and Stockholm. And that rejuvenated because he was also a surfer. He talked about it. And the missionary influence had gotten to such a low ebb that they were surfing whether they liked it or not. And so then it just kind of from the 1900s to really 1930s was the same. It didn't change. There were solid redwood boards, basically, and no fiberglass and no fin. And so that 30, 40-year period surfing didn't change very much and there was probably no more than a hundred surfers in California in the mid-30s. Uh, I don't even know if there's that many. But then the war came along, the Second World War, when the English invented fiberglass. They made them uh, a new bomber called the Mosquito Bomber and they made it lighter. They used balsa wood as a structure to make the plane, but the balsa wood didn't have the integrity and the strength, the rigidity, so they invented fiberglass and resin to give balsa wood the rigidity that the airplane needed to to function. Yeah. And that, in turn, gave us fiberglass for surfboards and made boards out of balsa wood instead of redwood. And it allowed, the biggest thing was allow a fin to be six, seven, eight inches deep. Uh, and all of a sudden, we could turn now. Yep. And so it really wasn't until 1950 that fiberglass and, and uh, uh, resin was available. And that changed the whole surfing world and then you could put them on your car and you could move around and they became maneuverable and girls would surf and kids could surf because you'd pick them up when i was a kid as i've told you you just left it at the beach yeah it was too heavy so you know it's just amazing and i just can't imagine what it's going to be like a hundred years from now no i mean the, I. they're not going to get any lighter a board weighs four pounds now yep so it's, it's not going to get any lighter but are they going to have different configurations do different things who knows but i think the way it started and what the period of time that i was here i think it's important for us to save that and get it down and protect it and leave it here as a legacy for people that want to see how it all came about because it really has an interesting history i like history you know i've ridden my motorcycle on the lewis and clark trail from beginning to end wow. so 
I just love the fact that you can go there today and go to the Leem High Pass where Lewis and Clark came over and it looks exactly today as it did 240 years ago when they came over. There's not a building, there's not a road, you can't see anything but trees and mountains. Wow. And so surfing has that same interest to me, the history and how all this came about. So I think it's important. It's what's interesting to me too is that um, it still really is in its nascency and the people who are early founders like yourself are still around so that we can have direct access to those stories of how these things developed, you know? And obviously Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, you've done a great job of um, uh, collecting all that and curating all of that and making it available for everybody else. And so. what I want to do that, I want to leave that. That's of course. what we want this to be here in perpetuity just because of that fact. I think it is important. And uh, the stories of, of how our lives and culture and lifestyle and surfing has impacted so many things i mean music uh clothes we wear the words we use surfing the internet i mean old ladies in the middle of the country are, use those terms yeah that you know those words are new they are 30 years old or something yeah so it's it's interesting how that all came about at totally. least it is to me and i hope it is to others you know, 100 years from now. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. I love it. We'd be glad to do it anytime. Thanks so much. You're welcome. There's a road I know I must go Even though I tell myself that road is closed Mr. Lonely Seabird You've been away from me Shack.org is where you could see Dick's current work and support the cause. That stands for the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, so it's S-H-A-C-C.org. And then you can find a lot of images of the things that we discussed in this four-part series on SurfSplendorPodcast.com. I've been getting a lot of emails and direct messages about Dick, so I'm compiling those and I'm going to send them to him and hopefully he will uh, be able to reply to you personally one-on-one -on -one. and uh, he's really by the way um, gratified by the feedback and is kind of blown away he was not familiar with the podcast medium he was familiar with the word podcast and kind of what it is but didn't know how to access one but he has seen all of the positive feedback and just how kind of robust this platform is for engaging with a lot of people and then converting that into one-on-one -on -one conversations so he's really, really um, grateful for this opportunity, and he's eager to do more. So I'm going to try to honor that and figure out a way. Maybe it's just one story every once in a while, or maybe it's these thorough conversations. Not exactly sure, but um, he's in California for half the year, so we'll spend more time together. And then I've got one final question for Leif and Jamin at NVS Fins. If the fins are superior and you can perform better, why don't we see guys on the CT riding them? <laughs> you do. <laughs> Perfect. Do, I mean, do the, tell. There, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, there have been people surfing them in contests. Yeah. Um, Plus, we're not able to offer the kind of sponsorships. You yeah. know, that's just that's just the reality. We, we've had a lot of conversations with folks, and it doesn't really fit our model to be 
doing what a lot of companies are doing with professional surfers and still maintain our pricing structure. Yeah. Um, we do have some, some ways that we can work with professional surfers to actually incentivize it for them to, and to make sense for them. But, you know, we, I think people have to see the vision. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a break from the standard, from the normal way of doing things. And I think that the upside is, is huge for, for us and for them. But again, it's just, you know, these folks are busy, you know, and it's, it's tricky to get people to, to kind of understand where we're coming from. Some people do, and then they're, they're pumped about it. Listeners are pumped. I've been pumped on these fins. I've been riding them for a year. SurfNVS.com is where you can find fins and try them for yourself. Their Apex series, which is available in twins, thrusters, quad, and even the C-Drive fins, those are available in the Apex construction. And the Apex series fins are 20% off with our promo code podcast. SurfNVS.com, promo code podcast. Enjoy that. Surf faster. And I'll be back next week. Welcome to 2020. I've got a new episode next week that I've been excited to share with you probably for the past month. And then I'm going to be embarking on another series. I'm going to be recording another series this month. I won't be publishing it for a while. But um, from another fan favorite um, guest doing another four-part series. So look forward to that. I'll reveal more as it all kind of comes together. I hate to really discuss things until they're completely in the can and confirmed. But lots more to come in 2020. I'll be back with Chaz uh, tomorrow, Friday, and then Scott next week on Tuesday for Spit. So until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you get back into the water, share some waves, and shred on into 2020.